0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm Michael Fragan on the Nachum Siegel Network. JM NachumSiegel.com, jmintheam.org. And welcome back after a one-week off for Shavuos. We are back, and we are proud to be sponsored by Seasons Supermarkets. Once again, Seasons Locations, Kew Garden Hills, 68-18 Main Street, 1066 Wilmot Road in Scarsdale, New York, and on the Upper West Side, 661 Amsterdam Avenue are all open. And the Lawrence store under renovation looks like it's going to be a very nice renovation from the pictures that I've seen. They make deliveries. Call in your order, 516-295-3300. That's 516-295-3300. Or to Lawrence Orders at SeasonsNY.com. And if you're in Kew Garden Hills, stop in tonight for Mechis Cholent in Kew Garden Hills. Open until midnight. So we are continuing on. We have a great show tonight. whole bunch of different political pundits, politicians, aspiring politicians, and the like going to be on. We have in our future mayor series, uh, Republican hopeful Joe Loda, former deputy mayor and MTA chairman. And then we have Isaac Dover from Politico, who is the White House editor, going to give us a little bit on the D.C., and he's also an old hand with regard to New York City politics. We have Dave Catalfamo, who is an Albany insider. And then we have... Uh, blogger Jacob Cornblue, who is a frequent guest on Spin Class, who's going to update us on his new blog out there. And we might also have a little uh, West Coast discussion uh, later on in the show. But first, I want to welcome Joe Loda to Spin Class. Joe Loda is running for the Republican nomination, uh, possibly the Conservative Party nomination for mayor of New York City as part of our Meet the Future Mayor series. We're going to continue that. And Joe Lota is also famously a former chairman and CEO of the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, also known as the MTA. Joe, welcome to Spin Class. Michael, great to be on your show. Okay, let's get right into it. Uh, the big news of the week is not so much going on in the Republican primary. It's going on in the Democratic side. And I know you're not running against him, but I got to get it out of the way how do you feel about Anthony Weiner getting into the race at this point?
1: You know, Anthony, and I've said this publicly before, Anthony and I have been friends for over 20 years now. Um, quite honestly, I think he's uh, got a great ideas sometimes. Uh, I know he's got an enormous amount of energy, but he also can be very undisciplined. I think he's uh, he, he is a wild card in the Democratic primary, and anything that causes chaos on the Democratic side is a good thing for me.
0: Okay, precisely. Well, that's a good analysis. So you're coupling your uh, your running for office with a little uh, punditry for the Democratic side. So that's great. We like that over here on the show. Uh, so, Joe, tell us for a second, how how do you think uh, Anthony Weiner approaches this race? And this is my last question about Weiner, and I just to say, he said this morning, I heard him in an interview on, I believe, the Brian Lehrer Show. It's talked about the Democrats need to be the party of ideas, because if they're not the party of ideas, they're going to go, they're not going to win city hall. They're not going to win Gracie Mansion again. So, are, do you believe also? You must believe that the ideas are actually with the Republican candidates in this case.
1: Quite honestly, no matter where I go, I'm currently in Bay Ridge and Brooklyn. Uh, you know, I'm always talking about new ideas, ways to create jobs, ways in which we can make the public school system better. We really have to focus uh... On, on our public schools our kids deserve the finest possible education uh... When i talk about you know the city budget uh, one of the things that i that never gets really talked about in this race is how the city budget has doubled literally doubled over the last eleven years while while Mike Bloomberg has been there and what's really important to understand is that the, our taxes have gone up our fees and our fines if you talk to anybody in the in small business or a homeowner what they're paying now, and it's, it's really driving a lot of people out of the city. We've got to focus on ideas to make our government get out of the way and allow our private sector to grow and our private sector uh, to prosper. Um, you asked me a question about, you know, uh, where do I see Anthony going to be in this race? Um, but honestly, I think Anthony's going to try to run right down the middle. I think the reason why he waited, everybody's been waiting for the last couple of weeks, is to you know when's Anthony going to get in? When's Anthony going to get in? All of the bloggers, Jacob, for example, gonna, or I heard is going to be on your show later. Would always ask, what do you know? When do you think he's going to do it? Ever since uh, Anthony started to get into the race, every one of the other Democrats running have inched more and more to the left. Anthony's going to run right down the middle, and he's going to provide in the in the Democratic primary. Um, those Reagan Democrats that still exist in all five boroughs are, are uh, going to be in play uh, because he's going, to, he's going to be a voice of moderation compared to all the left-wing uh, ideas that are coming out of all the rest of the candidates.
0: So possibly the Wiener primary voter is the kind of voter that you're looking to court for the general election.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Okay. Size up the Republican primary. You have John uh running against you right now, who also has the Liberal Party nomination. We've had him on the show. You also have George McDonald out there. Uh, how, do you think, how do you think you're positioned right now with regard to the Republican primary? I think
1: I'm positioned very, very well in the Republican primary. Uh, all of us need more name recognition. I have more name recognition than John and more name recognition than George. But be that as it may, not a day goes by when I'm not in all five boroughs talking to the voters, talking to the Republican voters as much as I possibly can. We've had mailings to the Republican voters. We're going to continue to have that uh, going forward. We've, we've used some tele, uh, teleconference calls as well with all of the Republican voters just to get our name recognition out there, but also to talk about uh, ideas. I think it's very, very important. I think we need to have some more Republican debates, Republican-only debates, real debates, not these issue forums, but an opportunity to stand at a podium, have Lotus stand there, Katsimatidis stand there, have McDonald stand there, and let's go at it. Let's talk about the issues and about what's different about each one of us, because there are differences.
0: So, Joe, John Katsimatidis talks about the fact that he's got a lot of money, so if he's going to win, he's the only Republican who can possibly win City Hall, because it takes a lot of money, a la mike bloomberg and he molds himself in the mike bloomberg style how does joe loda surmount surmount the substantial democratic enrollment advantage that was that most prognosticators say well mike bloomberg can only do it because of the oodles of money that he was able to spend
1: right you know uh, this idea that uh, you you know that john is putting out there that he's the only republican that can win because he has the money i mean if you follow through with that logic, Ron Lauder would have been elected mayor in 1989, um, and, and uh, we would have different, uh, a different governor and a different senator in Connecticut and a different governor in California, people who spent fortunes, uh, but came in second place, which John will do, come in second place. The reality uh, the, the, the reality is um, this campaign is going to be one on ideas, there are going to be at least two liberal Democrats running and a moderate to conservative Republican, Joe Loda. Uh, somebody will be on the Democratic line. Somebody will uh, we know as Adolfo Carrion will be on the independent party line, and it will be Joe Loda. And we're going to be talking about ideas. And here's where the ideas all revolve around. It's not about Democratic philosophy. It's not about Republican philosophy. Who's going to keep us safe? Who's going to educate our children? Who's going to pick up our garbage? And who's going to pick up uh, our snow when it actually happens? Those are the core issues that people focus on when they vote for somebody to be the next leader of New York. Um, I've got the skills to do it. Uh, I have the leadership skills to do it and the vision to bring New York to continue all of the great things that have happened in New York over the last 20 years to bring it to the next level.
0: Okay, let's talk policy for a couple seconds. Uh, You mentioned, and you were a budget director before you became deputy mayor, Tell us about the pension time bomb. That's something I hear every so often, that New York City is now paying, I think, more at this point uh, for retired workers than they are paying for current workers, or maybe it's a close number at this point.
1: It's it's a close number. It's true with the police department. We're actually paying more for retired police officers uh, than we are for the current police force. Um, look, the pension bomb in the city of New York, Here's what, there's a real disconnect here, because most people don't realize uh, what I'm about to say. It is a violation of state law for the city of New York to bring up pensions when they negotiate the collective bargaining agreements. The mayor does not provide the pensions. The pensions are uh, given by the governor uh and the state legislature. I cannot tell you how many times I went to Albany lobbying them during the Giuliani administration with all of the sweeteners, the pension sweeteners that were given to all of the all of the various different uh, unionized workers in New York City and all the pensioners in New York City, um, we warned then what was hap- what, you know what would happen now, uh, and and it's uh, it's and it's quite honestly it's actually happening. The mayor of New York needs to to use his bully pulpit. Tier six is not enough. We need to have another tier. We need to make sure that our new employees have uh what is closer to a private sector pension plan than the pension plans that are for the existing employees. This is a time bomb. It is not as big a time bomb as it is in a state like California or or a state uh like Illinois where uh their unfunded liability is substantial. I think you know the the city of New York's unfunded liability is in about the 90% range, which is very very high uh in comparison to other governments all around um the country, but be that as it may, a significant portion of our budget goes to pay for retiree benefits. And by the way, the one retiree benefit that, that you haven't brought up is the unfunded liability for health care. New York City employees, uh, when they retire, get free health care for the rest of their life. Uh, they don't pay anything for it, and that burden, that's an unfunded liability that is eight to ten times the amount of unfunded liability that we have in our pension system. We need to start putting money away for these retiree benefits. They've been given away, they're contractual, and the reality is no one's talking about it, and it, in fact, is the biggest time bomb that's out there uh, in our fiscal situation.
0: Okay, but you were MTA chairman, and I don't know if you actually negotiated the labor contract while you were there. I think it might have gone into arbitration. I tried to.
1: We never did get it completed, and it's still not completed. Okay,
0: because the MTA workers don't contribute to their health care at all. Um and they, i think they, they contribute had a st-
1: one and a half they could be the u the the t w u workers contribute uh, one and a half percent those who are not members of the t w u management and middle management contribute about twenty percent
0: okay so so at city workers, New york city workers don't contribute anything, so when they retire, they get free health care for the rest of their life that is correct okay so i i i've, I've imagined that. One of the things you might want to do when you get in there is is change that uh, that paradigm a little bit well
1: one one of the things I said, and i don't like to negotiate in public no, of course uh, not with, with labor related stuff, but one of the things I did say is that uh, you know when we get to the bargaining table, uh, payments for an increased amount of payments for health care costs are going to be on the table. They were on the table when I was negotiating with the, the transit workers union, they will be on the table when the city of New York negotiates with the various the 153 different bargaining units that it needs to negotiate with.
0: Okay, let's go micro for a second uh, to Jewish issues if you say since this we try and focus this a little bit on the Jewish community although we can talk all day about uh, city politics and city policy. Uh there has been a perception out there that you've had a slow start with regard to campaigning in the Jewish community. And I I don't know if that's something that's been spread by others, but uh, there have been articles to that effect. So you want to address that for the audience?
1: Sure. It it has been spread by others. Um, I have been focusing. I joined the campaign January 15th or 16th. My focus during that period of time has been fundraising. I've had fundraisers in various different Jewish communities uh, in, in almost all of the boroughs. Uh, my focus really has been making sure that I've got the capital, the actual, you know, cash capital, uh, to be able to prosecute a very serious and vigorous campaign. Uh, you know, the expectation on the, you know, it, it's but there will be time for the politics, uh, but I will have, uh, I'm making tremendous uh, uh, relationships, and, I, and I've had great relationships from my days, uh, when I was deputy mayor, with various different uh, community and community leaders, for example, in Borough Park and in Williamsburg, people who I work with both as budget director and deputy mayor, been able to rekindle those relationships. Uh, I, I, anybody who says that I'm not making inroads in, in the Jewish community, is it's, they're doing it for poli- their own self-political reasons.
0: Okay. The city council yesterday passed, I believe it was yesterday, passed a non-binding resolution calling on the... State to allow or to, to mandate the public schools need to allow religious groups to meet and congregate in the schools when the schools are not being used. I, this actually comes out, that used to happen. Church groups and synagogue groups, religious groups used to use the public schools for worship and that was actually outlawed, I think, last year by the Bloomberg administration. At, um, so the city council has now said the other way. And maybe you could address for a second you know, how you feel about that and how you feel generally about the city and with regard to religious groups and how some have this perception the Bloomberg administration has been hostile to uh, to Jewish groups a little bit.
1: I, I was outraged when uh, the mayor uh, tried to hide behind uh, the First Amendment and saying it was a separation of church and state issue. I mean, that's the most misguided understanding of the United States Constitution I have ever heard in my life. Religious organizations, any organizations, for-profit, not-for-profit, who want to rent uh, any part of our public schools after hours or on the weekends, so long as it doesn't interfere with the academic requirements of that school, they should be allowed to rent that facility. This idea that you can't have religious services in public schools it's, it's the most foreign thing I have ever seen in my life. You know, as you know, I'm not Jewish, uh, but I have, in fact, attended religious services in public schools, uh, both in New York as a young kid when that, my church was being built. We actually had services on Sunday in a public school. Uh, when I lived outside of New York, actually went to services uh, outside, at, at a public school. I don't understand the logic and the thinking behind it, especially when the fact that you know the religious organizations or any organizations are willing to pay rent to have that facility, rent that could go help the schools and paying for better education for our children. It's a win-win all the way around. I, the next, as, if when I'm the next mayor, I will reverse what Mike Bloomberg has done. We won't have to go to the state legislature to have a law.
0: Excellent. And last question, I want to be mindful of your time. I know you're out in another event out there in, in Brooklyn. Uh, what? How do you feel with regard to education reform? Uh, and I guess I'll be more specific with regard to the question, particularly with regard to the Jewish and Catholic school communities. They're really in need of uh, more government assistance. And I don't mean necessarily direct cash assistance, but that also go also go along. But things like security guards and nurses and all the things that the that the uh, city could provide in many cases but doesn't necessarily provide. Um, and I know there was a bill a while ago with regard to allowing or, or mandating that school safety officers should also uh, patrol uh, non-public schools as well, which I think to me is a no-brainer.
1: I agree with you. Senator Marty Golden from Bay Ridge, who I'm going to see in a little while, actually has had a bill put forward. Uh, to to make sure that uh, uh, the NYPD and its school uh, its school uh, the the police officers who are involved the, the school security school safety
0: me, officers yes
1: um, would would be available in uh, parochial schools and yeshivas you know the security of our children shouldn't be distinguished before, between where they go to school we should as a city make sure that everybody is properly safe and properly secure. In answer to the broader part of your question, yes, this has been going on uh, in my life. I went to parochial schools in the Bronx when I was a when I was a young kid, and I can remember there were issues about the fact that you know uh, some textbooks that were not religious based could be paid by the state, bus services, nursing services, uh, all of which have been cut back significantly. You know, making sure that there's a proper health treatment. That, that's not an issue that should make a distinction between a private school and a public school. It's a responsibility of the state to make sure that children are inoculated, that have, they have the proper health regimens, uh, that they have the proper textbooks. There's gotta be a better way of, of uh, understanding uh, that it's the responsibility of the state to make sure that our children are properly educated. I will fight to make sure that we get the ability Uh, to work not only with the public schools, but also the private schools, the parochial schools, uh, the religious schools, um, because I think it's very, very important. They're an important component to the education process and always have been in the city of New York.
0: Okay, Joe Loda, Republican candidate for mayor. Thank you for joining us on SPIN Class as part of our Meet the Future Mayor series, and uh, we wish you best of luck in the campaign.
1: Great. Thanks, Michael. Look forward to seeing you soon.
0: Okay, with the spin class, we're talking politics, Michael Fragan here, and we are sponsored by Season Supermarkets, and I want to go to our next guest. Isaac Dover is the White House editor at Politico, and if Politico is not a site that you visit regularly, it definitely should be, because it's all things political uh all around the country, and he also was a new former new yorker well he might still be a new yorker uh but i'll let you correct me with that but he was i, I, w- I won't
2: accept former michael
0: <laughs> he, he has new york cred i should say he, before coming to going to politico he was the founding editor and lead writer at city hall and the Capitol, which have survived him although you know might not uh might miss him uh, quite a bit so isaac thanks for coming on spin class
2: it's great to be here
0: okay so let's talk about the white house for a second Okay. Second term, second term malaise. We're we're always approaching an election. And even though it's an off year, we're already approaching that next year of uh, midterm elections. Uh, Are the Democrats, is the White House in panic mode at this point with regard to scandals and all kinds of issues going on?
2: I don't think panic mode is the right way to describe what's going on at this point. The scandals are obviously not good. The last two weeks are not the two weeks that the uh, the president or anyone in his administration would have chosen to have, but so far there has not been any evidence or proof that the uh, scandal can be rooted back to the White House on the IRS front or on the uh, Justice Department front, or uh, and and the Benghazi situation, which is does have a connection much more clearly to the White House, is one where the White House and and the administration feels that they. Remain in a position of uh, of strength and and justification.
0: Okay, I accept the fact that uh, panic might not be the right word for it, but I I think we have to say that they are not dominating the news cycle as they may have thought. Uh, I, there's definitely a defensive there's, posture going on.
2: There's no doubt about that, and uh, you see the, the with the president's speech today talking about. What he wants to do on drone policy and the war on terror. It is the first time since uh, two weeks ago that, if there's been news about Barack Obama or the White House, it hasn't been bad news. That's that's definitely true.
0: Okay, interesting. Let's uh, talk for a second about Eric Holder, and uh, some are out there talking about the fact that Holder has become a little bit of an albatross with regard to uh, with regard to this uh, AP and you as a reporter. You know might have some some strong feelings about uh, the Department of justice uh, tapping uh reporters uh, phones and cell phones phones and and the like so give it give us some idea about what where things are and how that could, how that can really happen without without going to the very top of the justice department
2: well what we learned about the situation with the the AP phone records is that in the search for the leaker about the situation in Yemen that the the AP reporters uh, were able to expose, the Justice Department pulled phone records uh, of the AP. Now, the argument coming from the Justice Department essentially is that if they were looking for the leakers, uh, then they needed to look to to who the people uh, who were leaking were talking to. And they did that not only with the AP, but also with uh, James Rosen as the reporter for Fox News, uh, with uh, some information that he had reported about North Korea. This has made journalists very uncomfortable. There's no doubt about it. And uh, journalists have uh, a say in, in what ends up in the news, and that's helped drive some of the coverage about this. But the, the situation with Holder is that what he told uh, everybody, and nobody knew this before, was that he had... Uh, the day after the the story came out about the the Justice Department actually looking into the AP phone records, Eric Holder came out and he said that he had been interviewed by the FBI in connection with that investigation into the, the that national security leak, and therefore had recused himself uh, about uh, for the the investigation into it. And the decision to look into the AP phone records had been made by the Deputy Attorney General. What we learned today, though, is there's a report that is out that says that the uh, the order to investigate James Rosen, the Fox News reporter, actually was signed by Holder himself, according to this report that's out now. So uh, it's, it, it's not... Uh, though Holder may not have had anything to do with the AP investigation, per se, he's certainly involved with the way the Justice Department has been pursuing
0: this. Correct. Thank you for pointing out the... I guess the different pieces of this investigation. Uh, the, I I did meld the Associated Press together with all the other ones. So let let's see for a second how much you miss New York politics. Uh, you know, to, what's the perception of the mayoral race uh, down in D.C. Particularly since a former congressman is now jumping in. And I I I, yeah. I have to apologize to the audience for a second. I know we're kind of have this. I feel a little bit that we're having this obsession with Anthony Weiner. We've talked about him, whether he's going to get in the race for a couple of weeks now, and now all of a sudden he's in, and I feel like i got to talk about him again. However, I will say in fairness, that's all anybody is asking me today. So everybody just wants to know how I feel about Anthony Weiner. So I'm going to ask my guests how they feel about Anthony Weiner.
2: Well, I, I think that the mayoral race as a whole, the perception in D.C. is pretty similar to where the perception is in New York, which is that it hasn't been that exciting of a of a race so far. Uh, and that means that people in D.C. are paying even less attention to it than they, they might otherwise, since it is not uh, a, a national race, for all the attention that it gets and for all the attention that Mike Bloomberg gets and previous mayors have gotten nationally. So Anthony Weiner uh, has helped get more people paying attention to the mayoral race, both because it's certainly an interesting story to see him in this race, and he also, is someone who obviously has a lot of Washington connections, people in Washington were uh, paying a lot of attention to uh, Wiener in, uh, in the midst of the scandal that took him down two years ago. But also before that, he was a very known character around Washington uh, for uh, all of the speeches that he would make on the House floor and always being uh, in the media and giving interviews about uh, all the things that he wanted to talk about. Uh, so, So that has helped focus a little bit more attention, at least for the moment, on the mayoral race down
0: here. So let me give you two curiosities about Wiener, and I'm going to read a little snippet from Stuart Stevens and the Daily Beast because I think it's instructive with regard to what the public perception of Anthony Wiener is, or the Washington perception of Anthony Wiener. Uh, and he says, don't blame his iPhone, meaning Wiener. The reason Anthony Wiener is not in Congress is not that he was caught sexting an unknown number of women. No, the reason he was forced to resign is that he was such a despised member of Congress that his own party, including the president, jumped at the chance to get rid of the self-righteous, hectoring, Chuck Schumer mini-me. And I'm saying that without laughing. Uh, so what you're saying about Washington, they were all too happy to see him go, maybe to send him back up uh, I-95 and have him uh, you know, New York's problem.
2: There are people who uh, have served in Congress and have had sex scandals and have remained in Congress. Uh, They have been much more serious scandals, arguably, than what the Wiener scandal was. Uh, There's a senator from Louisiana, David Vitter, who was mixed up in a prostitution ring, uh, and he has been reelected and continues to serve in, in the Senate. And there's even talk about him now maybe running for governor in Louisiana. Um, so well, that would
0: continue possible. a long tradition of uh, scandal in the Louisiana <laughs> governorship. <laughs> um,
2: it's possible to survive a site scandal. I think you're absolutely right, and, and the point that Stu Steve Stevens made is correct, that there was a feeling in the positions of power about Wiener that they did not like him and uh, that he hadn't made friends in, in a situation that like the one that he found himself in two years ago. You need friends. You need people to stand by you. And instead, what happened was that uh, the minority leader, Nancy Pelosi, and uh, Steve Israel, who is uh, high-ranking in the House leadership, but also obviously has uh, the – being from Long Island, has a a New York connection, helped uh, push Wiener towards resigning. They they weren't standing there in support of him, and they sort of urged him to – toward the door.
0: Interesting. And the second uh, curiosity that I saw is that his ad man, his old ad man, uh, Jim Margolis, who is was an Obama ad man as well, mm-hmm. he made this really, actually, uh, nice video for Wiener's rollout, but apparently he did it as a volunteer. He did it for free. He doesn't want to be on the campaign payroll. What do we make oh. of that?
2: Well, uh the fact that he could do it without joining the campaign officially is a function of our campaign finance laws, and people can decide whether that is a good thing or a bad thing. It's just the way the laws are structured at the moment, Uh even in the New York City campaign finance system, uh, which is tougher than just about any around. The fact that Margolis didn't want to be associated with him speaks... uh perhaps to the fact that a lot of people have been avoiding Wiener's campaign. A lot of people that he worked with in the past um, have not signed on professionally. He has not attracted so far a lot of uh, staffers. And you can see in the way the campaign has been going that there is perhaps a need for more people and more people with more
0: experience. So how do you run a campaign like that if you can't attract endorsements and you can't attract staff and you can't is is he just such a force of personality that somehow he's going to be a factor or is it kind of this fresh face he comes in he jumps in and then his support dissipates?
2: We'll see. Uh, I can tell you that I I was not on the streets uh, with him today when he was launching the campaign, but I saw the pictures of it and there were a lot of reporters there. And uh, he certainly was able to attract a lot of media attention. He has always been good at that. But whether over the course of this campaign he'll be able to sustain the free media attention that he gets and whether that free media attention will translate into votes that will make up for the fact that he does not have institutional support, that he doesn't have a lot of staff support, uh, that he has uh, obviously a couple million dollars in the bank, which is very good, but has a lot of publicity work that he needs to do to uh, make people believe that uh, he should be trusted again, and that he should be trusted to be the chief executive of the city. Uh, That—that's—that's that's the question that Anthony Weiner's campaign is going to answer over the next couple of months.
0: Okay, so two more questions for you. I'll just—I uh, got to ask the Huma question. Okay, Huma uh, Weiner's wife a part of the Clinton universe, a very important and vital and integral part of the Clinton universe. Is she pushing him to run, or she's begrudgingly going along?
2: Well, if you watch the launch video, one of the really important and some would say surprising moments of it was at the end of it when we hear his wife speaking. They're sitting together, and she speaks out and says that she really wants him to be the next mayor of New York, that New York needs him to be the mayor. That's, uh, given the scandal that took him down two years ago, having his wife behind him is incredibly important. And uh, it seems that she, at least for the purposes of this video, the purposes of the campaign, is supportive of it. I can't get into their their private conversations uh, because uh, with a, a husband and wife, as we all know, there are all sorts of things.
0: That oh, those are protected, <laughs> but but you know about them. You just can't talk about them. I understand. Um,
2: you can make some guesses about what what goes on, and we hear a little bit. But uh, these are two people who uh, have learned uh, in part the hard way, and in part just from being around politics a long time how to keep their conversations with each other. Relatively private. What we know for sure though is that the Clinton family with uh, whom Huma is very close, since she was Hillary Clinton's uh, trusted close aide for years, uh, is not supportive and is not enthusiastic about the way that Anthony Weiner has talked about Bill Clinton and sort of comparing himself to Clinton and the scandal, uh, their way out of the sex scandals. And they somewhat tellingly even for all the warm feelings they have towards whom Aberdeen are not endorsing anyone in the mayor's race.
0: Okay, last question. Since you had been the editor of The Capital, which was a paper focused specifically on Albany, anything yes. about Albany these days uh, surprising for you? And I know our next guest is going to talk a little bit more in depth about Albany, but I want to get your take from uh, from down south there.
2: Um, I... I, I thought that I was going to a lot of press conferences that Prepararo was having to announce indictments when I uh, left uh, covering New York politics two years ago. I I was not really expecting that they would multiply by a significant factor in the time since. I think we could be in for uh, a lot of changes in who the people are in office in Albany. We could be looking at boon times for political consultants and campaign consultants who are suddenly facing a lot of open seats. Uh, the, the number of indictments that are out there uh, is already big, and it doesn't seem like there is any reason to believe that those indictments are the last indictments that will come out. And each one of those people who's indicted could have already been wearing a wire, could be wearing one now and has knowledge of other things that were going on, this could easily uh, mushroom out to, to encompass more people, it would seem.
0: Okay, Isaac Dover, White House editor for Politico, and uh, everybody should be following him and Politico on a routine basis if you want to know about politics. So we are going to welcome, uh, tell you, thank you and hope that you will come back in the very, very near future.
2: Anytime. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, we are on the line now with uh, Dave Catalfamo of uh, Park Strategies. And Dave is the ma- a managing director of Park Strategies, uh, pardon me. And he was the communi- communications director for Governor George Pataki. Uh, for quite a few years, as well as uh, holding other senior posts within the administration, and an Albany veteran, I think, of two-plus decades. I don't want to date you, Dave, at all. Right. Welcome <laughs> welcome to Spin Class.
3: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, Dave, as an old Albany hand, let's uh talk for a second, before we get into scandal or scandal of the week, uh, and I want to tangentially talk about uh, Anthony Weiner yet again. Uh, mm-hmm. Governor Cuomo seems to have been tripped up for what I imagine – is almost the first time uh, he's so disciplined when talking to the press, and then he gives an off-handed comment that it would be a shame if New Yorkers elected Anthony Weiner, and then of course steps back and says, "No, no, no, I was just joking."
3: Yeah, I saw that, and it looked like he was in an, an editorial board meeting, so perhaps he wasn't thinking that the transcript would be, you know, produced and let out. But um, when you read the transcript, it doesn't look like a joke, so uh, it probably reflects more of his honest opinion. But you know, I mean, more importantly, I think you know, for the race, he you know, he's not going to get involved, and therefore, uh, I don't know, that really has much of an impact.
0: Okay, Dave, I sit here right now in a studio on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and uh, I think you might know who the assemblyman who represents the Lower East Side, it is uh, Sheldon Silver, uh, mm-hmm. who is uh, very well known in the Jewish community and uh, the Orthodox Jewish community as well, and uh, for many people, uh, is, is a stalwart, of uh of the community as well as obviously an albany uh powerhouse uh there is talk out there and there's chatter out there that uh sheldon silver might be in trouble at this point uh i'm not sure you know i think of him as being a very adroit and astute politician uh but out there people are talking about the fact that the vito lopez scandal uh might be something that might actually take him down so give us a perspective
3: I, I think that's probably a lot of wishful thinking, uh, on some people's part. I, I don't think that, uh, this scandal has a, a chance of taking him down. I think it probably has weakened him, at least temporarily. Um, and, and probably given, you know, Governor Cuomo and the, and the Senate maybe an upper hand as they finish up the last couple weeks of session here. Um, but I don't think that, uh, either in the short term, uh, or the long term, it's gonna endanger his leadership. I think, you know, first and foremost, there's no one to take his place. Um, and, and always to replace a leader, you need someone who could take their place, and there, there just isn't anyone on the scene that could put it together that that, that could take the uh, the speaker out. So I, I just I think that that's a lot of wishful thinking, honestly.
0: Wishful thinking on the part of who, though? Uh, you know, folks, I, I don't see really a change. I mean, okay.
3: you know, obviously, when you're in in leadership for such a long period of time, um, not everyone's going to love you. And, uh, you know, you, you make enemies and you make friends and there'll be people who want change. I mean, we've seen a number of the editorial boards, you know, jump out and criticize the speaker and suggest that he should uh, be forced to resign or step aside. Um, but, I you know, candidly, they don't really matter that much. What matters in the Assembly is the support of his conference. And, and you know, it appears to me, and I think it appears to most people who know Albany, that he has that. Um, and, and I don't think that's going to change.
0: So that's an a b- important part, I think, for the audience out there who understands the idea of who the constituency of the Speaker is. It's, in fact, the members of the Assembly, and those are the people who elect them, even though the position themselves, people are elected by the voters. But actually, right. when you hold the leadership, it's the members of the ones that, uh, that, that are out there. And I think by all accounts, uh, Assemblyman Silver has served his constituency – very, very well. He's, he's certainly well-liked and well-respected amongst his members.
3: Yeah, Absolutely. And, you know, he's very um, attentive to their needs. And, you know, at the, look, there's some, you know, school of thought that, you know, the, uh, the speaker's job, and, and any speaker's job, is to take the barbs for the entire conference and, and to be able to, whether it's Vito Lopez or another member, candidly, uh, to be able to protect the institution and protect the conference by being strong enough to actually take all the criticism that, that comes with uh, putting the institution first. I do think that they have a, a serious problem vis a vis this issue from the point of view that there's some history to it with other cases and there isn't the credibility there to suggest that, um, that other women who could be victims, you know, have an opportunity to come forward. And I, and I really think that, um, you know, for the good of the institution and for the good of his own legacy, I think it's important that he puts in place some real serious reforms and actually takes this matter further than they have in the past to make sure that these reforms are implemented, uh, so that we don't see a repeat of this. Um, but again, I think that's that's an internal matter. I think that it's incumbent upon him to do it for a lot of you know good reasons and political reasons. But ultimately, at the end of the day, whether or not they do them or not, I don't know that will impact his leadership.
0: So you're a communications professional. You advise people on strategy and perception and how they want to be seen in the public. Could could the politicians in Albany kind of get any lower in the public perception right now? And our our, our previous guest, I, I think you probably heard what Isaac said, is that he's expecting that there's going to be more there's going to be more shoes to drop, if you will.
3: Yeah, maybe I, you know and, and and I guess that you suspect that given the fact that there's been legislators walking around with with wires on uh for a number of years and uh but look, you know, I mean notwithstanding all the sensationalism and and notwithstanding the fact that they're uh, been a number of legislators who, who run into trouble, you know, uh, and, and it's gonna sound like a very Albany insider thing to say, but most of the legislature, legislators are honest, and they're trying to do their job, and they're trying to represent their constituencies. Um, I do think that mostly, you know, with all due respect to your audience, this is a downstate issue, and to a largest extent, it really does tend to be more in the, uh, in the Senate Democrat area um where there was just for you know a long period of time a uh, a permanent minority of Senate Democrats and they it, it tend to generate both candidates and elected officials up here who really weren't invested in the office and we see a lot of the corruption has come out of that group of individuals i think the the newer members of that body and some of the more serious ones uh you know, have taken have taken the Senate Democrat leadership in a different direction. I think that's positive. So I think a lot of it is a little bit historical, and I don't I I don't actually expect to see the flood of indictments coming down. I really don't. I think they would have come already.
0: So let's talk about the upstate downstate divide because it's interesting that you would say that this is a city downstate issue. Mm-hmm. And I uh, somebody we had uh I think Bill Hammond actually we had him on a couple weeks ago and he talked about the fact that most of these scandals are really coming from New York City legislators, not to say exclusively, right. but but uh but New York City legislators. But how upstate is certainly uh different politically, it's different economically and they're much more, there are many more issues, many more big issues for a lot of the uh, for the upstate economy that are affected by what goes on in Albany. So, give give us a perspective as downstaters, uh, what uh, people upstate are, you know, what what is happening and what's not happening uh, uh, in Albany w- with regard to their agenda.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think first politically, I think it's important for you know your listeners downstate to understand that you know being a senator or an assemblyman upstate is a big deal. And basically, as you move north out of the city, it gets to be a bigger and bigger deal. So there's more actually focus on those offices. Whereas in the city, you know, they tend, it's actually a lesser office. The city council races and the, and obviously the mayor's office. And, and even to a certain extent, the, the borough presidents and whatnot uh, are, are higher profile offices. So, you know, that that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, on the political side, I mean, we've really seen, you know, and I, I'm going to say this since, you know, my boss, last left Governor Pataki, I think there there's a real imbalance in, in the politics. I mean, and it, and it plays itself out in in very important policy ways that have been, I think, detrimental to uh, the upstate uh, competitiveness and, and job creation and uh, overall tax situation. And we see that in issues like hydrofracking, where hydrofracking would not impact the city at all, yet city-dominated politics is, to a certain extent, driven – uh, a, a failure to decide on that. We see it on things like um, tax credits where, you know, there used to be a fairly robust economic development program that impacted upstate. Now we're spending over a half billion dollars a year to promote films, which are 99% New York City. Um, so you see it permeate, you know, beyond the politics but also the policy. Uh, and I think that's been overall to the detriment of upstate
0: New York. So the governor announced yesterday that he's creating free tax zones mm-hmm. on SUNY campuses. So I, I guess I'll look at that two ways. And we're here with Dave Catalfamo of Park Strategies here on Spin Class. Uh, I'll ask a two-fold question on that. Number one is, is that an admission that taxes are way too high in New York? Uh, is he actually coming to that conclusion, belatedly? And number two is, what is everybody else who's not going to locate their business on a SUNY campus? Are they... How, how, do, how are they looking at that kind of thing?
3: Yeah, that's always that's always the challenge with uh, tax programs, which is to try to make them fair for everyone. Um, you know, I, look, I, I think anything that that uh, makes it the tax climate better uh, for any business or any New Yorker is a good thing, and I and I and I don't have anything bad to say about it. It's really not a very dissimilar program to the Empire Zone program that existed uh prior to that except for that it's focused around the SUNY campuses with one major difference which would be apparently the proposal would allow for employees in these zones to actually not pay income taxes. So if you work for a company on one of these campuses, that individual wouldn't pay income taxes, which is a pretty big deal. Wow. Yeah. Um but there's a long way to go. I know that so you don't Carlos... have to
0: move to Florida anymore.
3: <laughs> well, you need to work at a SUNY campus. Um so, you know, I know, I know the Senate Republicans and, and Senator Skelos and whatnot have, have some concerns with the package and they want to get involved and, and tweak it. And so I, I, expect we'll see some discussion on it. Uh, but I, look, I think it's a positive idea. I think it's one that, you know, look, could look to, uh, generate, uh, jobs that are related to really one of the state's, you know, biggest, uh, uh, infrastructure, uh, positives, which is our, our higher educational institutions, which are numerous and, and very well regarded. So, I think it's a plus. But our tax is too high overall, of course. Yeah. Is this an answer? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an incentive for for new uh, for new companies to come to New York. It doesn't do anything for the ones that are here uh, suffering under higher taxes already.
0: Because uh, the governor has been advertising heavily uh, that New York is a great. Uh, you know, we're cutting taxes, and it's a great place to do business. Right. Uh, and we've been doing that. Uh, I. It's, Somewhat uh, around the country, but even here in New York, interestingly enough. So, uh, Dave, I got one final question for you, uh, as uh, just with regard to a guy named Fred Dicker.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, you're an Albany uh, insider, and you know, so I, I've I've get the question every so often from people: is who is Fred Dicker? Uh, I read the New York Post, but why does he seem to be the guy who kind of moves the press agenda? in Albany. And uh, since you might have tussled with him at one point or another, I want to get an idea of, now he's tussling with the Cuomo administration. Give us a, a rundown on who Fred Dicker is and uh, why is he his own Albany institution?
3: Uh, you know, he's a conservative columnist for the New York Post. The New York Post in and of itself is, is I think, that, you know, in my view, the most influential paper uh, for politics in the state of New York. And And Fred is... You know, probably their most influential reporter. Although he, he reports less and less, and writes his column more and more. Um, you know, I think I think because the paper is what it is, that that's that's obviously you know given Fred Cachet, and he's been able to create relationships with uh, governors that come in and, and use that to his advantage. Uh, clearly, on this gun bill, you know, the governor did not appreciate that. You know, Fred is a conservative by nature, an economic conservative for sure, and believes in the Second Amendment rights and is a big fan of hydrofracking. So on a number of issues, you know, he's certainly parted with Governor Cuomo, and I think that's created, a uh, obviously, a fracture there uh, and a level of, uh, you know, uh, uh, concern on Fred's part, which has changed the way that he's viewed the governor, and that gets borne out in his columns. Um, but that's, he, you know, Governor Cuomo is not the first governor that uh, that relationship is. Changed on. If you go back and you look at Governor Spitzer, he had the same relationship early on. If you look at Governor Pataki, he had the same relationship early on. Um, so it, it's a, actually a fairly well trod uh, cycle uh, where Fred falls in love and then he falls out of love.
0: So, <laughs> so it's pretty quick. And uh, I guess now he's uh, feuding specifically with uh, Josh Velasto, right, who is, uh, was the governor's communications director.
3: Yeah, it sounds like it's getting kind of personal between the two of them, but, uh, you know, look, it's a tough business, and they're both smart, tough guys, and um, at the end of the day, I, I think they'll all work it out.
0: Okay. Dave Catalfamo of Park Strategies, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class, and uh, we hope to have you again uh, in the very near future.
3: Uh, thank you. Great talking to
0: you. Okay. This is Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm Michael Fragan, sponsored by Seasons Supermarkets, and we have on the line Jacob Cornblue who is no stranger to this show, and no stranger to politics in general, and Jacob has started a new blog as part of Yeshiva World News. Jacob, welcome back.
4: Always a pleasure to be on the show.
0: So, not only do you have a new blog, but you're breaking news on the very first days that you're out there. Tell us about the news that uh, that you've broken, and... Well, I'll just say... I'll just tell about the news that you've broken. You have identified a challenger to city councilman David Greenfield, who we have thought was going to coast to election. You tied this challenger to Assemblyman Dove Heikens. Assemblyman Dove Heikens then denied the fact that this gentleman was going to challenge David Greenfield. But now you've confirmed, in fact, that 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 this uh, gentleman will be challenging David Greenfield. And I guess uh, I want to kind of get into this Greenfield uh battle, which is, I guess, brewing into an all out war.
4: It's it's the nuclear option they call it.
0: Okay, um, but well give us the give us the rundown. Who is the challenger?
4: The challenger is is a guy um, by the name Chaim Israel. He's he's been on the uh, on numerous uh, um, community boards and uh, boards of directors of of various uh, um, uh, groups here in Borough Park. He is uh Aguda Shishuel loyalist and we all know uh um we shouldn't hide the fact that hiking is out to get David Greenfeld. He's just using Arguda as a scapegoat just to prove that it's not because he lost decisively in two thousand and ten. It's because uh David Greenfeld is not in line with Aguda on certain issues. Uh Bob Hyken knows that anybody who challenges at this time David Greenfeld is going to suffer defeat. Therefore, he found a straw candidate. And how better is it to catch a loyalist, tell him, I'm giving you the backing, you go out, you take the heat, don't worry, you have my back, and all we will do is embarrass Councilman David Greenfield. He won't feel that he defeated a viable opponent. He'll feel he defeated the straw candidate, and we will have the opportunity to have him on the grill. And that's the only motivation that I have uh, concluded um, after making uh, research for over a week. I've spoken to a lot of reliable sources. Uh, Dov the only response was that I'm a, a graffiti artist. Uh, I take it...
0: Uh, <laughs> I think that's, gra- that's graffiti if you put it into American accent. Oh well listen. I'm no, from that's fine. Ma- I know you're from England. I'm just trying to translate. No problem.
4: will take time. another decade or two I'll be a uh, American citizen. You'll be able to challenge me on my English.
0: <laughs> I apologize. We well, appreciate the King's English here in or the Queen's English, I should say, uh here on Spin Class. But uh Jacob, please continue.
4: Dov can decided to to bash uh Yeshiva World News, to bash me, to bash whoever he finds in the way of him. He didn't uh, offer any concrete evidence that he is not um, behind this candidacy. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Mr. Israel declined to comment, even though we reached out to him uh, numerous times. There's an indication that Mr. Haikin is out in a nuclear war against David Greenfeld. He'll do whatever it takes. I even um, heard, as it's unconfirmed, but Mr. Heiken told his friends that if nobody is challenging David Greenfeld, he's ready to resign from his post as assemblyman and run and challenge David Greenfeld himself.
0: Okay, wow. That, would that be in a primary? That would be in a Democratic primary. So that's going to be pretty soon, because I think petitioning starts in, like, two weeks? Uh-huh. Okay, so I guess this is all going to shake out. So tell us a little about the, about the new blog. Okay. The new blog
4: is basically, I, I, I was hired by Yeshiva World News. Yeshiva World News is known as a growing uh, a media outlet in the Orthodox Jewish community. As you know, I've covered the male race in general, but also from an Orthodox Jewish vote uh, uh, angle. And I bring my social media experience over the past five, six years uh, in blogging in, in uh, on twitter uh, in communicating with various uh, media outlets and and uh, honored the, um, um, got the honor to, to to earn the to earn my reputation as a as a reliable source as somebody who is outspoken but I wouldn't make up stories just to get in the headlines. I, I do research on all my stories uh if if I get uh, um, some tips. I would always uh, uh double check. I would always get back to the guys. I would always ask for facts and evidence. And so, you're responsible. You're a responsible me. journalist,
0: Jacob. So, wh- where can people find where can people find the blog on, on... it's
4: on it's on the Yeshiva World News um, website. Um, it's the Yeshiva World dot com, and on the left hand side, there's a banner that goes directly to the blog, and also on the tabs. Um, at the uh, on
0: top of the blog, and you're going to be following it's things all, at a very local level, I imagine. So let let's get for a second. Not,
4: not necessarily local. No. I'll be covering all uh, national, Israeli, uh, local, whatever. It's all politics. The blog is
0: called. Well, it is it is all politics, and all politics is local. So therefore, I made that assumption, but uh, silly me. Uh, let's talk for a second. John Katsimatidis had a leadership breakfast for Jewish leaders, and I think you attended this week. Do you want to shed some light on that? We had Joe Loda on earlier, and John Katsimatidis had been on the show in in uh, a couple months ago. So tell us a, wh- about that breakfast.
4: First of all, uh, um, John Katsimatidis, he he he, he, he reiterated his message, which is, I'm a fusion candidate. I was a Clinton Democrat. I can appeal to the Reagan Democrats, to the independents. He also proud of his um, endorsement of the liberal line, which gives him also another line for people who don't want to vote for Republicans. But is, but that, is that appealing? That
0: to, is that an appeal to Orthodox Jews? I mean, I would actually think that uh, most, uh, most people okay, in the Orthodox so, Jewish community want, want somebody who's more conservative. You don't walk in there and say, I'm a liberal.
4: Well, he didn't say he's a liberal, but he offers another line for those Democrats who don't want to vote for a Republican candidate. However, his message was, you've got to vote for a Republican regardless. The Democrats are lefties. They would take um, down the city. Uh, uh, we need a Republican. There's only one choice, John Katsimatidis, because Joe Loder stands no chance. And he, he actually suggested, and he, he said it at the recent forum, but uh, I, I asked him if I could give over the message to Joe Loder. He said, go ahead, tell Joe Loder that he can run for controller. he has my full support. I'll be backing him. It will be a great ticket me as mayor and him as controller, but I guess Joe Loder has some different uh, maybe uh, vice uh, versa. Point of
0: views on this matter. maybe Joe Loder would accept uh, John Katzemati is running for controller um uh, but uh, I guess they will have to meet on lunch for that. okay, Jacob. I look forward to continuing our discussion with regard to. Uh, what's going on in in Brooklyn and beyond? Thank you for joining us once again on Spin Class.
4: Always oh, a pleasure, Michael.
0: Okay, this is Spin Class. We're talking politics. We're getting near the end, and I want to bring in Judith, uh who is here in the studio, as usual, and she's going to tell us a little bit about what's going on in L.A., uh, where L.A. has recently elected a Jewish mayor this week, and that makes three for three of the big cities. New York City, Chicago, and Los Angeles all have Jewish mayors.
5: Yes, it's very exciting. It's very exciting. Um, we have just elected our, our new mayor, Eric Garcidi. And, uh, it was an interesting race. A lot of people have been speaking about it just because it was, it was kind of difficult to differentiate between the two left-wing candidates. They were very, <laughs> they were very left-wing to begin with. And a lot of people were talking about how there was a joke going around, you know, Wendy Gruel, Eric, um, Eric Garcetti, people were calling them Wendy Garcetti and Eric Rule because right. it's really I, difficult. I guess
0: I should explain that, uh, they have an open primary system. Everybody runs in a primary. And then if nobody gets 50%, there's a runoff. So you have two Democrats running against each other. And a lot of people suggested that's the way New York City should do things as well.
5: Well, this this race was interesting for a couple of reasons. The first reason is because Hollywood is, was involved. And very rarely is Hollywood involved in such a local race. Usually, you know, you see the movie stars and they're campaigning for Obama or something more national. But in this case, uh, Hollywood was very involved. And that's because Garcidi is actually, he's in charge of that district in front of Hollywood. And Wendy Gruel, she had previous work experience in DreamWorks, which is a big, um, it's a big employer out there. So oh,
0: so give us an idea of how the Jewish community played a factor in the race, or if at all
5: i, I really don't i do 't know okay if at all, but I could tell you that uh, the Jewish community, especially the orthodox community, tends to be a little more right wing so I can imagine that their uh, perspective about all these such left wing uh, politicians being in charge of of the city maybe is not the most optimistic but well now one man's left winger is another
0: one centrist, so we'll uh so yeah. <laughs> I would imagine that Eric Garcetti is probably a little bit of a centrist out there. But uh, along, you know, the mold maybe of Rahm Emanuel type of Democrats. Well, he's,
5: he's a lot. He's, you know, he's more to the left than Wendy you He's
0: more to the left. But, okay. but
5: they're very, I mean, it's exciting to have a Jewish mayor. It's very exciting to have a Jewish mayor. OK,
0: this is spin class. We're wrapping up another week. Uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us. And we will be na- back next week to talk about politics. Stay tuned for the Thursday night extravaganza with Nachum Siegel. On the Knockham Single Network.